Well, it's a joy, joy to be here. Isn't the weather been absolutely beautiful? It's been absolutely amazing. And um, I was quite happy to open all the windows last night and just let the breeze blow through and feel warm air. Isn't that a wonderful thing to feel some warm air? So um, it's my joy to preach uh, this morning, and I'm going to continue in our series out of 1 Corinthians. Um, so if you've got your Bible or if it's on your phone, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I think this is part 16 of our journey through Corinthians. I'm going to read from verse 9 to verse 13. It says this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have had to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business of mine is it to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from amongst you. All right, that's our text for this morning. I think it's a good idea that you pray for me. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> So I'm going to pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the truth of your word. And I really ask, Lord, that you'd help me to communicate well this morning um, as we look at some of these things in our culture and that are changing and controversial. Uh, I pray, Lord Jesus, that your word would speak into our hearts, that you'd enlarge us, that you'd help us to see things from your perspective, and that we'd learn to love our neighbors as ourselves in all of this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so last week um, Clive clearly and really eloquently preached on the first portion of this chapter in which Paul challenges the church in Corinth because they had failed to discipline a man that was sleeping with his father's wife. And uh, Clive Drew it, drew it to our attention that it says not even the pagans would accept that kind of behavior. Maybe this was a much younger second wife of this man, but the point is that Paul expected them not to, to tolerate that behavior in the church. And here we see Paul continue to challenge the Corinthian church around sexual behavior and some other important issues that are, he highlights in these verses. And he starts, I'm just going to start by looking at his introduction make some comments around our culture at the moment, and then try and hopefully help us understand how we can uh, live this out in terms of our own lives. And I hope it's going to be helpful. So he, he starts by, in the first verse, by correcting a misunderstanding that the Corinthians seem to have had. Remember, part of this reason of their misunderstanding, Paul, might have been because, remember, there's, there's been this kind of... Um, tone in the church where people have been preferring one speaker to the other, some, I like Paul, I like Apollos, and perhaps in their arrogance and their dismissal of Paul, they um, have misunderstood something they were saying. You notice it says in my previous letter, I've already written to you, well, this is 1 Corinthians, so we know that there was a letter that was written to the Corinthians that has been lost, and we don't know that, what Paul said in that letter, but here he's saying, I did write to you originally about 
not associating with sexually immoral people. And I don't want you to misunderstand that. And so how, what could he possibly have meant? Well, I think the key to the sentence is this phrase, not to associate with. And Paul uses this exact phrase again in 2 Thessalonians, for example, in chapter 3, verse 14, where he says, we should not associate ourselves with idlers and busybodies. That's interesting, isn't it? Don't associate yourself with people that are idle and busybodies. And that literally means, that phrase literally means mingle with socially or to hang out together in a close way. So Paul is encouraging people to be careful with who they actually build friendship with. And he's making this distinction here. And so he makes his point plain after he said, uh, talked about misunderstanding in verse 10, where he says, not that I mean people of this world who are immoral, or greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have have to leave the, leave the world. I think Paul is being a little um, sarcastic with them. He's kind of saying, well, I don't know how you could have misunderstood me, but I'm just making my point clear again. I'm not talking about people in the world. I'm talking about people here that you, uh, he says, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an adulterous, slander, drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. And so he's not, he's not saying don't hang out with people socially who are not saved. He's talking about hanging out and building relationship with people socially that are saved, but persist in certain behaviors. And he lists six behaviors there. And he says, if you are in a church and people are doing these things, then you shouldn't hang out with those people. And that's interesting to me that Paul links six things, sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, being a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. All of these behaviors are beyond the boundary for those that are claimed to be in the kingdom of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. And so I find it remarkable, and as I was preparing this week, that I just thought how much of the church today would shy away from challenging any of those things, especially like being greedy or gossip or swindler, and especially in our sexually tolerant culture, challenging sexual immorality in the church. I think there are very few, very few churches that embrace that challenge. And so let me start with some basic cultural observations before I look at this text in a little bit more detail. So we live in a world right now, in a culture right now, a Western secular culture that increasingly values sexual freedom as the inalienable right of every human being. I have the right to sleep with whoever I choose to sleep with when I want to do that and how I want to do that. It's a fundamental human right. This is how culture sees our sexual freedom. And children are encouraged and taught to embrace that view in schools from a very, very young age. Uh, and if you are in, bring any perspective that might challenge that view or offer a different view on sexuality, that's seen as problematic and by many people hateful if you offer a different view. And so for many, their sexuality and their sexual behavior is beyond anyone's critique or challenge. And if you do critique or challenge that, it's seen as problematic and hateful. And so Sam Albury, who I, I recommend his books, he wrote a book recently called Why Does God Care who are, about Who I Sleep With? And he puts it this way. He says, more and more, 
Sexual freedom is regarded as one of the greatest goods of Western society. Who we sleep with is seen as a supreme human right. Anything that seems to constrain our choice in this area is viewed as an existential threat. And that's the context of our culture. That's in the world in which we live. And so this is the world that we live in as followers of Jesus, as followers of the way, as followers of Christ. And so it's into this context that I want to put it to you this morning. The Bible still speaks. And in particular, the letter of Paul to the Corinthians still powerfully speaks as it did to the contemporaries that he was with in the first century. And Paul and the other apostles preached this message of the gospel, the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, into a culture that also had a permissive view of sexual freedom and celebrated that, as we will see. And so for first century Greeks and Romans, they lived out their sexual lives in a culturally affirming way. And I add to you this morning in a way that our culture would also affirm and it's into that context, very similar to our own, that the radical message of Jesus and the freedom that we have in Christ with a new kingdom and a new ethic and a new morality, that kingdom is preached by Paul and the other apostles. And so as Jesus' people, as those that believe in Jesus in the 21st century, we face similar challenges and have to find our way in our own day and our own culture to live out our lives, including our sexual lives, in a way that honors Jesus and honors His Word and honors His church and loves all people. How many of you would agree that is a great, great, great challenge? As things are changing so fast, as culture is seeing gender as fluid and gender is changing and identifying in many different ways, this is a great, great, great challenge to us as believers. And so let's get back to our text. I trust that um, you will also extend some grace towards me this morning. I have half an hour in which I cannot possibly begin to address all the issues in our culture right now. And uh, so I'm making an introduction this morning, all right? And over the course of the year, we are going to have other people into the church to help us think through some of the specifics of how we can engage in our culture with people with different views from what the church traditionally has held to. Is that okay? All right, so this is an introduction. And I want, to, I want to start by looking at this term sexual immorality that Paul uses here. And it's translated from the ancient Greek word pornea. Pornea, where we get pornography pornography from. And in the broadest sense, it referred to all types of sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship, including homosexuality. All right, so now originally pornea, in its original first context, referred to going to prostitutes and using the service of prostitutes. But by New Testament times, the Jewish community had used this word as a broad word to describe extramarital sex of any kind, including homosexuality. And that's the sense that it's quite clearly used in the New Testament. So now over the last 50 years in particular, liberal scholars have argued about what this word pornea means. And in other places, they have argued about the words that are used to describe homosexuality, and I've looked at many of those things myself. But the plain truth is this, is that you have to work really, really hard to make it mean anything else to what is obvious and plain in the text. You have to work really, really hard. 
And uh, I want to remind you that the first century church, this, these letters were written to ordinary people like you and me in congregations to encourage them and help them in their culture. They were not written for academics to dissect and to debate the meaning of the words that Paul might have meant. The context is plain and simple, and often the simplest answer is often the, the, the correct answer. And so I, I want to put that to you as a, a basic uh, framework with it, as we approach the Scripture. Generally, it means what it says, and it's plain, and it's straightforward. It was written for ordinary people to understand. And so here, this word pornea, when you look at some of the other letters that Paul writes, it often appears first in the, the, in the, the list of sins that Paul um, lists, like it does here. It's the first thing that Paul mentions, and then he mentions other things like uh, greed, swindling, idolatry, etc., etc., etc. Now, why is that? Well, it's not because the first century Christians were hung up about sex and didn't enjoy sex. Uh, it was the first, it was the most obvious area and the most dramatic place where the culture of Greece and Rome confronted the culture of the kingdom in the most obvious way. That's why Paul mentions it first. And it's our same in our culture today. Sexual immor immorality in our culture, pornea, is an accepted fact of life. And you can access pornography freely all over the internet. On social media, it's celebrated on, on TV now in, in terms of many kinds of different relationships that are obvious. And um, it was a, a accepted way of life for, for ancient Greeks as well. But it was considered not to be an accepted way of life for followers of Jesus. Remember, the, church in Cor the, the city of Corinth was notorious for promiscuity, for sexual immor immorality, Pagan religions that were celebrated in ancient Greece did not value sexual purity. Often they celebrated the opposite. Throughout, uh, you can go and read for yourself of ritual prostitution in temples, for example. We also see, in, if you've been to um, Pompeii, you can go and visit the bathhouses in Pompeii, and you'll see on the different uh, carvings on the different entrances of, of um, the bathhouses, Roman bathhouses. If you wanted a man, you went to this entrance. If you wanted a woman, you went to this entrance. If you wanted a young boy, you went to that entrance. And all of these things were, were acceptable. So this is the context that Paul is writing into. And to be a Corinthian was a shorthand way of describing those who were sexually immoral in ancient culture. Even Greek plays of the day often Corinthians were depicted as drunkards and as promiscuous characters in place. And so it's easy to see that in that context, uh, it wasn't difficult for a Corinthian to think, well, I can be a Christian, and yet at the same time I can just um, continue with my sexual behavior in terms of how the culture has affirmed my sexual behavior. And so uh, Greek culture could matter-of-factly say this, mistresses we keep for the sake of our pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our bodies, but wives bear us legitimate children. I'm quoting there from Greek culture. And so in our day, changing sexual behavior remains a main area of conflict and tension in our culture, especially as the West continues to throw off Christian values and embrace a post-Christian secular tag, as I've said. And we live in this culture that celebrates and pr promotes pornea. Daily, we see it on social media, television, and many other ways. I lost yesterday, because it was such a beautiful day, 
I went to visit my son, Jesse, who lives just near Hampstead Heath. And we were walking through Golders Green, beautiful, through the park up to Hampstead Heath. And as we got into Hampstead Heath, we met this um, young, well, he was probably in his 30s, this man. He stopped us and he said, hey, guys, can you please direct me to the expletive tree, the F tree? So I said, I beg your pardon? So he said, you know, the F tree. So I said, no, I don't, I don't know what you're speaking about. So he said, oh, well, every year we get together and we celebrate the life and we celebrate um, the legacy of George Michael and we get together for a party in Hampstead Heath and that's how we celebrate. We celebrate around the F tree and we have fun together. And I thought, wow, that is such a snapshot of our culture in that little encounter that I had. Anything goes, anything's permissible, don't challenge me in any way. Uh, my life is free to live as I live, and I'm going to play it out for everybody to see. This is just a little snapshot of our culture. And so I also read an, an article this, can I have some water? Do you realize how intimidating it is to speak this message? I also read an art medical article this, this week. Uh, which said that in the last two years since lockdown, sexually transmitted diseases in the UK are the highest they have been since 1918. Gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia are at the highest levels they have been in our country since 1918. And so I had a look at that and I thought, well, that's really interesting. What does that mean? And so the person who's writing the article said this. It, there are things like, for example, that people are more, um, uh, what's the word, um, medicine that you get? Uh, um, uh, you know, when you go and get a, no, 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 no. For anti antibiotics. Pe people are more resistant to antibiotics. That's, a, that's, a, that's true. We were locked away for a couple of years, so people have been more sexually active. That's true. But the overwhelming evidence says is this, is that for the last 25 years in schools, your children have been taught to sleep with anybody who they choose with. You can sleep with a man one day. You can sleep with a woman the next. You can sleep with both if you choose because actually it's your right. It's your human right to experiment sexually and to have a good time. And pleasure is the ultimate goal. Freedom is the ultimate goal. And so now, consequently, 25 years later, the area where the age group that is most affected by this rise in sexual transmitted diseases is kids between the age of 15 and 25. They are simply acting out on what they've been taught for years and years and years and years. It's okay. And I simply put to you this morning, our bodies are not designed to cope with such lacks sexual experimentation. And so added to that, we have this ongoing problem of biblical illiteracy amongst believers, which means that most Christians haven't really looked at what Scripture says about sex and sexuality for themselves. Most Christians have come to um, rely on what someone has said or they think they've heard or what they think the Bible says, or they've read books often by people pushing a particular agenda. But mostly, they have not investigated for themselves what the Scripture says about sexuality. And so, when you combine that with 
a culturally fashionable liberalism and a growing ideological pressure to conform to these values and a liberal, growing liberal arm of the church, which makes it even more difficult to navigate these things. All these things combine to aggressively undermine what Christians have held to for centuries regarding sexuality. And Paul's point here is remarkable. It's simple. He's saying right in the foundation of the local church, and I'm not here to comment on any other church. I'm talking about this local church. Paul is writing to a local church. He says this right in the foundation of the church, there should be a mutual accountability around such things like sexual immorality, greed, slander, and gossip amongst the members of local churches. That's Paul's point. And so to do that, I want to to say to you, we need a high degree of love. We need a high degree of grace. We need a high de degree of courage as we challenge and attend to these things as they arise in local congregations. It is not easy. It is a great, great challenge. And why do we need to do that? Because I put it to you this morning that the reputation of the church is at stake, and the church must be shown to practice what it preaches and live it out in a way that honors God and honors other people. And so Tim Keller, I was uh, just trying to do as much reading as research and as I could. You know, over the years we've had unhelpful things like people holding up banners saying God hates gays and all gays are going to hell. Have you seen that stuff in the media? So I saw this debate where Tim Keller was answering a question and the person said, well, do all gays go to hell? This is what... Um, the question was, and his answer was profound and simple. He just said this, no more than being a heterosexual guarantees you a place in heaven. No more than being a heterosexual guarantees you a place in heaven. What stops you going to heaven is your pride that you can be your own savior and that you don't need the good news of Jesus. Isn't that true? Some Christians have this tick list. If you engage in these certain behaviors, you are doomed to hell. And that's not the gospel at all. The gospel is that all of us need a savior. All of us need Jesus. All of us can't save ourselves. We need someone to rescue us from our own sin and our own foolishness and all the things that we do that are wrong. And so I want to put it to you secondly, the other com comment that Keller made that I thought was profound, he said, undeniably, there's been a failure of the church in the world to truly love their neighbors. Yep. We are called to love our neighbors. Remember the context of Jesus' command to love our neighbors? It was the context of the Good Samaritan. And I don't know if you know this, but the, the Jewish people, and they hated Samaritans. In fact, they are still, to this day, certain um, parts of Jewish, the Jew, Jewish tradition that will not even go through Samaria. They will not even walk through Samaria, the little part of, of uh, Israel that is Samaria. They will walk around it because they still do not like the Samaritan. There are still Samaritans that live today. And Jesus' comment to them is actually, he uses the example of someone they hated as an example of the neighbor they should love. Yeah? And th this is the... Profoundly challenging things. So surely for us as a church, it's a high priority, especially as we are commanded to, to love our neighbors by, as, by Jesus, even as we love ourselves. So in saying all of this today by way of introduction and pointing to you towards what Paul says in Corinthians, I'm simply affirming what the gospel says in John. 
John chapter 17, verse 15, when Jesus prays for his disciples and he says this, my prayer, Father, is that you do not take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. And so the, my point is simple. We are called to be in the world, but we're not called to be of the world. We are called to be salt and light to the world. We are called to demonstrate another kingdom, another way of living life that is the kingdom of God. And we are meant to do that, shining, as Paul says, like bright lights in the dark sky. We are called to live like that. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a follower of Jesus. And so by implication, Paul's challenge to the Corinthian church is an extension to every church that we, we have to be those that hold to two things, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love everybody, and at the same time, those that want to be a part of God's family, part of God's church, by extension, we have to say, well, there are certain things that are beyond the boundary of Christian behavior when you come to faith. And all of us have things in our lives that need to change. Perhaps, perhaps you've been a gossip in your life. Well, Paul says, when you come into, that, into the kingdom, you leave gossip behind. Perhaps you've been a swindler in your life, where you've swindled people out of money. And Paul says, actually, when you, come into the, when, you, when you come into the kingdom of God, you leave swindling behind. It's no longer an acceptable behavior. And part of what he says is our sexual behavior matters very much in the kingdom because it's what separates us from the way that everybody else behaves in the world, which is acceptable to everyone outside of God's kingdom. is not an acceptable behavior inside of, the, of, the, of God's kingdom. Now, this raises other issues which we're going to have to look at during the course of the year. How do we love people that have a different um, view on sexuality than we do? How do we engage with them? How do we welcome them into church family and church communities? How do we remain a welcoming community, a loving community, and at the same time say, there's a king who wants to transform your life? What a great challenge for us. Are you with me? This, 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 this is not easy. And so that's why, you see, Paul links six things as um, no longer being legitimate activities, and I've mentioned them already. And so my point is this morning, as the lovers of Jesus, as followers of the way, we should be actively seeking out contact with friends and family that are not saved. We should love and interact with everybody in our workplace, at school, at uni, at social media. We should be active in our business environments, in our sports cultures, participating in local government, in art, in many other cultural areas of life. In other words, it is an incredibly high priority for us as Christians to love our neighbors, whether they are from a different culture or background or nation. They might be gay, they might be straight, they might be Muslim, they might be Hindu, they might be Jewish, agnostic, they might be atheist. It doesn't matter who they are, who, it doesn't matter who your neighbors are. The command from Jesus as his church is that we love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen? We love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what it means to be in the world but not of the world. That's what it means to be salt and light. I mean, perhaps in your extended family, you have weddings this, this summer where someone in your family is marrying someone of the same sex. How do you handle that? How do you be a witness in that situation? How, how do you acknowledge that and at the same time be a light in a dark world? 
It's a, it's a great, great challenge. And so what Paul really is speaking about here is saying there is a separation. Even as we love our neighbors, even as we reach out to people from all different backgrounds and who see the world very differently from ourselves, there's also a separation that must happen in our own lives that we do not copy the culture and morality of the world because it's not the culture and morality of Jesus and his kingdom. That's what he's saying. And this, as I said, is such a hard thing to work out. And so I, I say to conclude that it's interesting to me that Paul links those six things together because I'm, I'm quite sure in our Western church culture, uh, we have this unspoken hierarchy of sins, the kind of, this kind of tick list that people tick off. And I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that we would not... Um, we would not uh, not welcome someone into fellowship because they were gospel greed or a swindler. Um, and we would see that in much, much lesser light than people's sexual behavior. And, uh, but it's, for me, it's also profound that the early church didn't see it like that. Uh, Gordon Fee, one of the commentators, um, says this about greed. He says, the ancient world, both pagan and Judeo-Christian, had a special loathing for avarice. That's the old-fashioned word for extreme love of money or greed for wealth or material gain. And he says, interestingly, this is something that has been, there's a growing legitimized greed in our culture that is mitigated against this. In other words, we, we're quite comfortable with the fact of greed. <laughs> we're quite, quite comfortable with the idea that if you, um, if you work hard, you legitimately can make billions and billions and billions, and we don't see anything wrong with that. Well, actually, people in the ancient world did see a problem with that. That actually this love of having more and more and more. It's ironic to me that during the lockdown, billionaires were, were um, created by selling, uh, by selling the gear that we needed to protect ourselves to loads of people. And um, most people that were politically corrected made billions out of COVID. Paul says we should be angry with that kind of stuff, that love of more and more and more and more and never having enough. It's avarice. And he says also that it's not only a thing of coveting what other people have, but it's the thing of following through on that desire and taking advantage of people and defrauding them to get what you want. He says have nothing to do with those kind of people. Don't even eat with them if they're in the church. Unfortunately, just to test me, many years ago in this church, we had a fraudster in our church. And we only discovered this over a number of years where he was a very charming man, had a prophetic gift, spoke over people, drew them in. Later, we discovered that he had defrauded people in the church. And he was sentenced eventually to jail and served a jail term. But he ripped off people in the church, claiming he was a brother and defrauding them at the same time. Paul says, have nothing to do with people like that. Yeah, that behavior is beyond the boundary of what is acceptable as a believer of Jesus. Amen. And so don't hang out socially with them, don't mingle with them. And so Paul is not, he's not advocating for a sinlessly perfect church community. He's not doing that. He, rather, he's saying he's challenging those who are carrying on with certain behaviors that they had 
in their lives before they came to faith in Jesus, before the Passover lamb, who we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Paul's image of the Passover lamb, before they'd been set free by the work of Jesus. And now he's saying, you belong to a different kingdom. You belong to a different king. And your lives are ruled by the Holy Spirit, no longer ruled by your carnal nature, no longer ruled by your basic physical motivation. You are ruled by a different king, a different kingdom, a different way of viewing the world, and a different ethic. And you are to live that out on an ongoing basis as followers of Jesus. And we are to look like Jesus, who is our king. And so I want to give you two scriptures as I conclude. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him. And this is compulsion that we live for others. Uh, Colossians 3.5, put to death ever, therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Again, pornea is right at the top of the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because, because of these the wrath of God is coming. And then verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now rid yourself of, the, of all these things. And it includes some other things. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Don't lie to each other. Since you've taken off the old and you've, with all of its practices and you've put on the new, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of Jesus, your creator. Here there's no Gentile, no Jew circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarians to the end, slave or free, but Christ is in all and is all. Here in the kingdom, there's a whole new way of living that doesn't depend on what you were born as, a Gentile or a Jew, whether you are circumcised or uncircumcised, it depends totally on who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. Amen? And so, this is Paul's point. He's not saying if you're struggling with sin, He's not saying if you, if you are battling in any of those areas. He's saying if you persist in that way of living, you are excluding yourself from the kingdom because you're not allowing your king, the kingdom of God to come in you and transform you by the power of, of His Spirit. And so that's why Paul says in verse 12, and I'm finishing with this, he concludes his argument and he says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge the outside, expel the wicked person from amongst you. And I've, I'm so fascinated that Paul lands on that. He says, what business is it of mine to judge anyone outside the church? And here he's using, in the Greek, the, it's called the unemphatic me, which implies he's saying, I, Paul, don't have that right. And actually all of you as the community of God, churches, the, the, the people of God, do not have that right either to judge anyone outside of the church. And so he says, ultimately it's God that judges, verse 13. And of course that judgment lies in the future on that final day. And it's not our business to judge anyone outside of the church. For now, the church takes the world as we find the world. And our calling is to be salt and light to the, to the world. Our calling is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Our calling is to be a demonstration through our lives of who Jesus is by the power of the Holy Spirit and to demonstrate that there is a king who is to be loved and served. Well, that's our business. That's what we give ourselves to. And then Paul says exactly the opposite is to happen within the church. That we are to be disciplined and to help people to see that there are certain behaviors that we must encourage them out of and into the new kingdom. And so that, that does leave us with some particular challenges as 21st century believers. 
How do we re reconcile Paul's words of, in verse 12, expel the wicked person from amongst you with those of Jesus in Matthew 7 who says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And the measure you use will be measured to you. Why well, look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when at all the time there's a plank in your own? You hypocrites, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will clear, see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. How do we reconcile those two things? Or what, what about Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 4 um, where we already had a look where he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. What about Paul in, two, in 1 Corinthians 6? We'll look at this later. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not also know that we will judge angels? How much more than the things of this life? How do we reconcile all of these things? Seeking to love people and not be judgmental. Seeking to welcome everybody and yet saying there is a king who wants to transform your life. How do we do it? Well, I want to just say we start in the text. And remember, I'm looking at this text this morning. Look at what does this text make plain for us? Paul's principle is simple. Freely hang out, associate with love with everyone outside of the church because you are salt and light to them, to your neighbors who are different to you, you are commanded to love them and it's precisely, you do that precisely because it's, at the end of the day, it's God that judges people's hearts, not you and not the church. He judges those on the outside and yet for you who believe, who are believers in the kingdom, you are careful in the church community that you discipline yourself, that there's no sexual immorality amongst you, there's no gossip amongst you, there's no lying amongst you, there's no ripping off of people amongst you, Jesus believers, Jesus followers, you ensure that in your local context, don't worry about anywhere else, God judges. And unfortunately, it doesn't take much observation to see far too often that the exact opposite is true in churches. On the one hand, there are Christians that don't want anything to do with sinners in the world and will hold up placards saying God hates gays, judging those outside of the church, while at the same time allowing the sins in their own, their own local church communities of immorality, gossip, greed, slander to thrive unchallenged. No, we don't worry about that. We just judge everyone outside. And then, on the other hand, there are believers that say to be Christian is to know that all are sinners anyway and that to love others is the highest goal that we have as believers. And so they live in the world and are very much like part of the world and there's no distinction between the church and the world at all. And so how do we navigate this minefield? <laughs> what do we do? Well, in the, we say in this church that we love the work of the Holy Spirit and we want Jesus to show us and we want to be those that hear his voice and we want to be those that daily ask the Holy Spirit to help us that we can hear how he wants us to reach out and how he wants us to be. And so I want to say to you that we so radically need to depend on the voice of the Holy Spirit in our own lives to help us genuinely love all people, whoever our neighbors might be, as we love ourselves. And at the same time, in God's church, 
help to keep the church holy and pure as we live out by Jesus' values of his kingdom, his ethics, his morality, because he is coming back for a bride one day that is pure. That's the challenge, isn't it? Put to death sin in our own lives so we too can be transformed to the image of Christ. Don't worry so much about everyone else. The world is what it is, but God's church, we want God's church to be pure and spotless because that's the bride that Jesus is coming back for. And so that's what Paul is saying in this portion. And we're going to look at other portions as we go forward. And my, my genuine prayer for us, my genuine uh, prayer this week has been, God, give us all strength and courage to walk this radical, radical path of love, this radical path of grace, this radical path of holiness that will not conform to either of those extremes as we love all people, as we love our neighbors as ourselves, and as we seek the kingdom in our lives, in our church, in all that we do and how we live. Jesus, we need your Holy Spirit. We need you. This is impossible without you. Amen. already gone over. I'm just going to pray. Maybe you just want to extend, extend your hands. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to come. I'm aware that some of these things are very, very challenging. I'm aware f- for some of you, um, you, you, you might have family members that uh, have very, very different perspectives, and you've got to navigate that challenge. I'm aware of that. But let's ask for the grace of God to help us to shine for Jesus like stars in a dark sky. Jesus, my prayer is as as we simply want to respond to your word, as we recognize the challenges in our culture, recognize the pressure in our culture, Lord, give us strength. Lord, give us courage to radically love people. Jesus, I pray for your grace. I pray for your empowering grace that will help us to live and love as you lived and loved. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would saturate us, that you would help us day by day as we interact with all kinds of different people to point others to your kingdom, that we would love people with all of our hearts, that we would love our neighbors as ourselves, that we would not be judgmental people in any way. But at the same time, we would radically love your kingdom. We'd love your church in how we live, how we live that out, how we point others to you. Jesus, we can't do this ourselves. We need your spirit. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.